Our scripture reading for today is Micah 5, 1-5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege uh, is, uh, is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But, o, uh, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from the uh, is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And as shall stand the shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, he, and he shall be their peace. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jillian. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for Advent and for Christmas and what it represents, uh, what it means that God uh, became man. And we look forward to the day when uh, you will be our peace. Uh, Father, I pray for um, all of us in here who come uh, with different experiences of the week, uh, different hopes, different fears, different anxieties. Um, would you meet us, um, and would you give us a taste of that peace, that ultimate peace today? Uh, would you quiet our hearts and help us to receive the good news, uh, the good truth of the gospel this morning? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I love roaming bookstores, uh, and when you roam bookstores frequently, you pick up on trends in publishing, particularly regional trends. And so uh, you'll just sort of see the things that are top of mind for San Franciscans when you um, roam a San Franciscan bookstore. And sometimes that is a funny thing. Um, one of the trends, though, that I've noticed lately is books about coping with climate change. Um, that there's just uh, in new book sections, there's a lot more of that. Um, it's apparently called Eco Anxiety. And so, one I saw this past week was Generation Dread by Britt Way. She's at Stanford. Uh, finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Anxiety. Uh, in June, a paper on eco anxiety was published at the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. And so, uh, people who struggle with eco-anxiety are folks for whom climate change news is just impacting their day-to-day -day functioning. They can't get it out of their minds. And so among the characteristics um, of eco-anxiety, they cited frustration, powerlessness, feeling overwhelmed, hopelessness, helplessness. Uh, they use terms like eco-PTSD, eco-burnout, burnout, eco-phobia, eco-rage. Um, according to the paper, clinically relevant symptoms were worry, rumination, irritability, sleep disturbance, loss of appetite, and panic attacks. Um, in the New York Times article about this, about this trend, I was particularly saddened they interviewed an Italian 16-year-old uh, girl, and she was quoted as saying, already I have Latin, Greek, and French exams coming up. Now I have climate anxiety too. Um, super sad for a 16-year-old for that to be top of mind for her. 
And of course, climate anxiety is not the only meta-anxiety on offer today. Uh, Generation Dread, you, you could give that title for a book on any number of subjects, right? For millennials and Gen Zers um, who experience dread. And dread is a great word for a lot of the anxiety underneath our current discourse because it expresses this looming sense of catastrophe. Uh, people are anxious about politics, culture, the economy, technology, the church, but then there's nothing to do. Nothing ever changes, and so people are just waiting for the inevitable to happen. Uh, needless to say, this is a recipe for hopelessness, particularly among young people, um, just starting their lives out. Um, what is it, you know, I wasn't thinking about the survival of the world when I was 16. Um, I, that was not top of mind for me. Uh, but now I have personally been asked as a pastor about the ethics of having children in such a world. And so people ask you, like, is it wrong to knowingly bring kids into a world so broken? Uh, and this sense of dread is causing people to question having children, saving for the future, taking career risks, sacrificing for the greater good. It's just hard to justify um, given the uh, futility of so much. You have good people leaving politics and the best people never get into politics because it's just uh, a total mess. It reminds me, the phenomenon reminds me of the psychology of uh, some uh, people with chronic diseases. Uh, so at least when I was growing up, cystic fibrosis, for example. So 30 years ago when I was a kid, the average person with cystic fibrosis only lived to like 30. Um, and so they begin their life thinking, I only have until 30 years old. Um, now, praise God, it's about 50 years old um, at this point, if you're born uh, in 2023, which is wonderful. Uh, but when it was lower, folks with uh, CF were often known to live more recklessly than the average person. Um, because what did it matter? Like, why? I don't need to take care of this body for decades. Why not try drugs? Why not? Why take care of your body at all? Why be responsible? Why go to college? Like, what use is college if I'm going to die in just a decade? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. Reading these articles about eco-anxiety, it's, it's not surprising that impressionable young people, um, already the most anxious generation in modern history, are struggling to care, are struggling to know what to do. They have been told repeatedly that the earth is chronically sick, the people in charge aren't doing anything, and there's nothing to be done. And so how are they supposed to respond to that? And so that same 16-year-old, uh, uh, she said, watching TV and seeing everything burn, it's hard to stay interested in world problems when there won't be a world. Every summer will be hotter, it will always be worse. It will always be worse. Friends, this is not the truth. In a series on knowing the truth, on courageous living, let it be said loud and clear that this is not the truth. It will not always be worse. That girl needs to know that. And we need to know that. And we need to be people who say that loud and clear, that whatever we know, Whatever we learn from science, psychology, news, experience, whatever we see on the news, whatever we know, we know this is true. It will get better, unfathomably better. Where we can't even imagine 
that our world used to be this world. One day, whatever the truth is, it must include that. And it is our calling as Christians to live in light of that future day. Having children, taking risks, doing good, planting churches, becoming missionaries, investing in cities and cultures, planning for the future, our eternal future, but also our immediate future, planning for our children's uh, nation, our grandchildren's worlds. Our strategies, of course, might change, and they might need to change drastically and suddenly based on the conditions of our surroundings, but our hope never changes. In pastoral care and counseling, a mantra of mine is, while there's life, there's hope. Uh, Samwise in Lord of the Rings said that. Ecclesiastes 9.4 says, anyone who is among the living has hope. While there's life, there's hope. If you're alive, there's hope. If I'm alive, there's hope. Well, what about when my life is threatened, when life is finished? That's the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of grace. While there's life, there's hope. And for those who believe in a resurrected Christ, there will always be life, always. So there is always hope. Climate catastrophes, World War III, the decline of America, the doom spiral of San Francisco, nothing can take that hope from us. Personal tragedy that you might be facing now, financial ruin, career setbacks, mental illness, estrangement from community. It's all so painful, and, and suffering is real and legitimate, but it cannot touch your hope. Your inheritance remains in heaven, undefiled, unfading, incorruptible. Because of the twin miracles of Christianity, the incarnation and the resurrection, there will always be life. John 1, 4 through 5, in Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Because of Christ, there will always be life. Because the Son of God, who cannot die, became man in order that he might die, he died in the flesh for our sins and was raised three days later to live again. Because of the Apostles' Creed, which we receive as the rule of faith, the rule of truth, last week the ancient faith, it measures and conforms all truth. Well, it ends with belief, I believe in life everlasting. And so anything that we know to be true, that is true. That is the measure of truth, that whatever is true, life will go on forever. There is no universe wherein you are no more. As long as Christ is alive, if you are in Christ, you will be alive. But here's the thing. There is no universe wherein you are no more. There is a universe this universe that is guaranteed where sin and death are no more. And so there's no, no universe where you are no more, but there is a universe where sin and death are no more. That is our hope. A time when all war ceases to be, all terror, all tragedy, illness, famine, pollution, poverty, guilt, fear, shame, all of it will be gone. The Christian hope is not just we'll figure it out. Humans have always figured it out. 
we're a brilliant species, we'll get through this. That is not the Christian hope. Our hope is founded in the saving power of God, in his faithfulness. Christian truth has a trajectory, a trajectory that is aimed squarely at peace, that terminates in love, that bends towards justice. So remember Romans 8.28, when we think about knowledge, when we think about truth, what do we know? Romans 8, 28, and we know, we know in that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The Christian hope is that there is a promised land, a restored humanity, a renewed earth, a land flowing with milk and honey, full of abundance. And that promised land waits on the other side of whatever wilderness we are walking through. Whatever wilderness you might be going through or could walk through, in fact, you actually can't get there without walking through the wilderness. That is the testimony of Scripture. On the other side of the cross is eternally abundant life. And we can be sure of this hope because after Christ died, he rose from the dead. And he is more alive now than he ever was. Last week, we spoke about truth and prophecy we live in a prophetic age, but so many contemporary prophets stop short of the full story. They stop before hope. They might speak the truth, but they leave out the most important part, Jesus, who is himself the truth. And without Jesus, we inevitably leave out hope because the truth of Jesus leads to hope. Romans 5 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, in the wilderness, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And we said a lot of things over the past couple months about truth and knowledge, um, but let's end with this, that all Christian truth must include hope. Romans 5, that's right. All Christian truth must include hope. If God is truth and God is also gracious, then all truth also must be gracious, and that gives us great hope. If God is good, if God is love, and Jesus is the Son of God, truth has to, in the end, offer hope. And so in an age with so many competing narratives, how do we know who to trust? Trust the one who still holds on to hope. Not because he hopes in himself, but because his hope is in God. Now, today's text, Micah 5, is one of the Hebrew Scriptures' famous Christmas texts. Uh, the Messianic predictions. In Micah chapter 5, the prophet predicts the birthplace of the Jewish Messiah in Bethlehem. And sure enough, in Luke chapter 2, we read of the birth of Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came birth for her to give birth. The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy. And, and this isn't just something that we read back into the Old Testament. Uh, Micah 5 was well known for centuries before Jesus was born. Um, Israel already knew uh, that the Messiah would be born there for hundreds of years. And so, um, so much so that when the three magi came, like royal astrologers, which is such a great uh, thing that the Bible includes astrologers, um, royal astrologers from the east who'd seen in the stars the sign of a new king and came to worship him. When they came, the chief priests and scribes could tell, him, tell them very quickly that he would be born in Bethlehem. So in Matthew 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, quoting Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the chief priests and scribes knew Jesus would be born in Bethlehem because it says so in the book of Micah. Preaching this morning from the a book of Micah, though, the context, it's a, it's a book of Old Testament prophecy, and it's like most Old Testament prophets in that it's mostly filled with bad news. It's mostly hard, terrible uh, news. Uh, his indictments of the people of Israel would fit quite well in the opinion pages of any contemporary newspaper. Um, just um, speaking against the leaders in particular, that's, that's what Micah is known for, is he is berating immoral, unjust, lazy, terrible leaders. Um, and so no matter your political persuasion, Micah is your guy. Um, <laughs> he doesn't offer a lot of hope in the near term. Um, and yet, the bad news in the Bible is never alone. From the very beginning in Genesis 3, the bad news never stands alone, and it never has the last word. Again, Christian truth always includes the promise of hope. Old Testament prophecy, when you read it, it's always delivered in this back and forth between judgment and salvation, judgment and salvation. It's held in tension like a rope in a game of tug-of-war but with God's mercy always winning. And so it might, it might venture one way, but the trend is clearly moving towards mercy. In the time of Micah, the leaders of Judah were moral failures. It was a sorry time to be alive. And so the Hebrew scholar Elaine Phillips explains, the depths of human wickedness are on full display across all social categories. Micah is called to confront leadership at every level as they are complicit in the lax practice or malpractice of covenant care for community and land. Self-interest and neglect of those marginalized at every level rule the day. And as Yahweh's appointed spokesperson, Micah warns the wicked of forthcoming judgment. He promises that the power brokers in the human realm will reap the consequences of what they have sown. And so 
That is the bulk of Micah's ministry, an indictment of their corruption and sin, and he foretells their military capture. But Micah doesn't only give bad news. In fact, for Micah, the bad news is part of the good news. It's a necessary step toward the good news of salvation. We read in Micah 4, verse 10, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall be exposed. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so, yes, he will exile them for Jerusalem, and they should writhe and groan. It will get worse before it gets better. That's the bad news. But God exiles them so that he might save them. It is in Babylon where he saves his people. That is the whole truth. And the whole truth is good. And so if we stop short of listening to the Lord and listening to prophecy, we will miss out on the offer of grace. God may have a ton of hard things to say to his people, to say to his church, to say to you, but grace is always there. Hope is always there. While there's life, there's hope. A grace not only in the future, but which is already at work. And so God is orchestrating history so that he might redeem his people. Even in judgment, you shall go to Babylon, there you shall be rescued. In scripture, all prophecy leads toward the good. But this is hard to see, especially by those who don't know God or know his character. And so the nations um, mock Israel. Um, Anti-Semitism is very, very old. Micah 4, verse 11, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. They want to gloat in her failures, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. They will be victorious, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Uh, Stephen Dempster writes about the biblical prophets' theology of history, and so that's what you can think of when you're reading the prophets, is they are reading history, reading politics, theologically, believing and trusting that God is sovereign over it all. And so Micah's theology of history is that God uses the nations to refine his people and to judge them, but their attempt to destroy the people will meet with final defeat. Then, when God reforms his people, this will become the nation's opportunity for salvation. And so the nations flow to Israel. Notice the beauty of God's enfolded grace that redemption is always on offer to all people. So God judges his people through the nations in order that he might save his people. But then he judges the nations through his people in order that he might save the nations. God is always aiming for redemption. Micah 5.2, this is the surprise Christmas verse. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. 
Uh, there is so much to celebrate in this passage. Uh, not only can we continue to celebrate how God's truth always includes hope, it always trends towards hope, how we also celebrate in the Bethlehem prophecy how God's truth of hope tends to emerge in the lowliest of places, in the most obscure places, not in Jerusalem, not in the empires, but in Bethlehem, too little uh, to be of note. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, The point of this passage emphasized again in the New Testament is how Bethlehem is supremely unimportant to humanity, completely irrelevant. Um, In preparing for this sermon, um, anytime you like revisit the prophets, I feel like I have to refresh. Like, what is this about exactly? I'm not really sure because there's like so many competing narratives. And so, you know, I, I tried to read some background information on Micah and the geopolitical context. Um, and it kind of hurt my brain a bit because there are just all these references to like kings and empires and mountain passes and rivers and north and south and east and west. And it was like someone was describing a map to you but not showing the map to you. And so you're just like trying so hard to see it. Um, but then I got to the end of it, you know, I'm like investing uh, uh, precious time into this, thinking it will be helpful. And by the end, like Bethlehem was not mentioned at all. And, and that's kind of the point, right? Is that like, it was, it was out of mind even for Micah, who like throws it in here in the prophecy of Micah 5.2, but Bethlehem had nothing practical to contribute to the primary problems of the world in Micah's time. They had no army. They weren't a stronghold. They weren't a strategic location. They couldn't be a shield to Jerusalem. It was a nothing town except for one thing. It was the birthplace of King David. That's the only thing that it had going for it. And that was hundreds of years before. But, but a couple hundred years before, God had promised to send a savior king from the line of David. And so God had placed our hope in Bethlehem. Micah is restating this historic promise. He's reminding the people that God has promised to save them But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so not only does Micah restate the promise, he adds to it. He's not just foretelling the human birth of a new David, he is foretelling the human birth of God. He will be born a ruler in Israel, but his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That is from eternity. He has been around since eternity past. And so this is none other than the only begotten Son of God, the Son of David, who was before David, Jesus the King, born in the little town of Bethlehem. We finally put up our Christmas tree last Sunday but we've been listening to Christmas music since November 1st. It's getting a little old. But this is all due to Lucy, who just cannot be stopped. She cannot be thwarted. And so it's been Mariah Carey and Frank Sinatra in my car like every day uh, since November 1. Um, But I was listening the other day to A Little Town of Bethlehem, and the opening stanza struck me differently than it had before. Uh, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, 
Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. And what hit me was the word dreamless. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. It's such a sweet melody, and I usually sing it surrounded by like festive decorations in a good mood, in a holiday mood. And so I always just picture a happy little village, right, sleeping in quiet anticipation, kind of like the children and twas the night before Christmas, right? Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. But that's not what dreamless means. That's not the picture the hymn or the scriptures are painting for me. There was no Christmas before Jesus was born. It was just cold. Joseph and Mary weren't in Bethlehem for a family reunion. They were there for a government census. So Caesar, the great Caesar, could survey his greatness so they could be taxed more. And so the scene of Bethlehem is more tax day than Christmas day. Just another indignity. And so the lyrics, deep and dreamless sleep, silent stars, is a picture of hopelessness, of meaninglessness. In Bethlehem, it was, as C.S. Lewis says about Narnia, always winter and never Christmas. Even though, just like in Narnia, Bethlehem knew the prophecies. They knew Micah 5, and that God was going to send a Savior, but their hope had grown cold. They had become dreamless. In a prophetic age, with near constant nightmarish predictions about global warming, world conflict, economic disaster, a collapsing city, all this terrible news, it is easy to become dreamless to think to ourselves from our little village that it will always be worse. To think that if change happens, if it does happen, it won't happen here. As the silent stars go by, it's easy to believe in an uncaring universe. That's a universe which does not care. Silent to our suffering, silent to our beauty, the things we love, the stars don't care. Silent to meaning, a meaningless universe of which Humans are the smallest blip. According to science, secular science, humanity is a blip in space and a blip in time. It is completely worthless. And the psalmist agrees on principle. Psalm 8, verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, Yet, you have made him a little lower than the angels, than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This is the truth of God. It is the way of God who delights to be glorified in weakness. He delights to choose a little blue dot Carl Sagan's term about the ridiculous smallness, a little blue dot in a vast universe, and send his son to save them. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be important, but you, O earth, who are too little to be noticed, but you, O Israel, O church, who are too little and too small and too unimportant, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler. 
From you shall come forth the good news of Jesus Christ. From you shall come forth the love of God for a sinful world. From you shall come forth the power of God for a broken world. The hope of glory is here in this tiny cold room. We don't know the truth unless we know hope. If you don't know hope, then you you maybe know something, but you don't know the whole story. To give up hope is to give up the truth, to forget the prophecy, to forget the story, to forget that the truth of a loving God always, always, always includes hope. And not just a faraway hope, but a hope that is right here for us, with us, near us, in us. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shining, the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What are your hopes? What are your fears? What are the hopes beneath the hopes, the fears beneath the fears? The answer to both lies right here in Christ, in the birth of Christ, in the darkness shining the everlasting light, in the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, made man who died for the sins of the world but now lives and reigns forever. Now maybe some specifics are hopeless, doors are closed, specific outcomes, prayers even that God himself kept from you. In this world, uh, we've all lost so many things. Tragedy has struck, doors again are shut. Maybe even you feel exiled by God, cast out. Exiled to Babylon, punished through history and circumstances that aren't your fault. But hope always remains. And not just despite our circumstances, but in them and through them, God sends us to Babylon so that he might save us and return to us a hundredfold all that we've lost. Give us a life infinitely better than before. And in the meantime, in this life between promise and fulfillment, we live under the rule of the Holy Spirit and we are called to dream, to be people who dream. Joel 2 Speaking of Pentecost, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. When is the last time you dreamed dreams? When is the last time you prophesied? You saw a vision and you shared it with others. We have the truth. We have the spirit of truth. So whatever season you're in, whatever time our culture and city is in, let us not numb our hopes. Let us not numb our fears. Let's not forget to dream and to prophesy and to speak the truth with hope. We do not know the truth if we don't know hope. We do not speak the truth if we don't speak hope. To live verily, truthfully, courageously, Christianly is to live with hope. And so what is our hope? What is our dream? Our dream is the same as Micah's. Micah 5, 4 and 5. He shall stand, Christ 
shall be born in Bethlehem, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, we shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be our peace. Do your dreams include Jesus? Do your, does your truth include hope? It's not the truth if it doesn't include Jesus. It's not the truth if it doesn't end with hope, if it doesn't involve grace. And so let us dream dreams of Jesus this Christmas season. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for Micah 5. I don't know what was going on in, in Micah's mind when you had him throw Bethlehem in there. But I'm thankful, and not only thankful for that promise, I'm thankful to know that it was fulfilled, that you worked history to inspire Caesar and to inspire his vanity to call a census so that the Savior would be born, not in a palace, not in a temple, not in Jerusalem, but in a little no-name town of Bethlehem. Father, I'm thankful that because you fulfilled that promise, we can be confident that you will fulfill all your promises, that Jesus will come again, and he will be our peace, and he will gather all people to himself. He will gather the lame and the weak and the suffering and the struggling. He will gather us from Babylon. He will carry us through the wilderness. All these metaphors are true. Father, help us to live with hope, to be people who dream dreams. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us on this little blue dot. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.